1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia baird host of the channel, and today I'm talking to Kaveh Yazdani and Dilip Menon, editors of the new volume Capitalisms Towards a Global History, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Kaveh and Dilip, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation, Alexandra.
2: No, thanks. It's great for you to spend time with us.
1: Well, the pleasure is all mine, and I'm very excited to, to delve into this incredibly rich volume. But to begin, we always love to ask our editors and authors to just tell us a little bit about yourselves and your research, and how the book really came about.
2: Uh, Kavi, would you like to go first? I'll follow you.
1: Sure, of course.
0: So um, to start um, about myself, so I was uh, born in, in Iran, in Tehran, and was raised in Paris and Berlin. And I studied uh, history and philosophy in Berlin at uh, Humboldt University and Free University. And then I got my master's degree at Humboldt University where I worked on uh, issues on the rise of the West where I kind of juxtaposed Eurocentric and non-Eurocentric approaches. And then finally I I did my PhD at the University of Osnabrück where I um, once again uh, dealt with the uh, rise of the West debate, but this time from, from an Indian perspective, so to say, um, the great divergence debate, uh, and uh, I kind of focused on two regions, Mysore in the south of India, and Gujarat in the northwest of India. And after I finished my PhD, I had uh, two postdocs. The first was in Amsterdam for six months where I worked at the International Institute of Social History um and then i went to johannesburg south africa and this is where i met uh Dilip and um, where this whole uh, book project came about maybe you can say a bit more about that later and finally um i have been working at the university of Bielefeld for the past uh, three years and um uh I have just been uh, away once in the past semester, uh, where I was a visiting professor in global economics, uh, global economic and social history at the University of Vienna. But um, as uh, most of you have experienced, I had to kind of switch to online teaching and um, didn't really spend a lot of time in Vienna. So I had to kind of get back to Bielefeld after two weeks, which was a bit sad, but that's, I guess what many of us have to experience at the moment. So let me just say a few words about my research. So I focus on the socio-economic history of India between the 17th and 19th centuries, uh, in particular the history of Mysore and Gujarat and uh, the great divergence and the anti-historical premises of European supremacy, mostly in global perspective, um, the history of capitalism as you can imagine, then I also work on issues related to the history of modernity, uh, the history of the Persian world, and last but not least, free and unfree labor relations, especially in the context of conceptuals.
2: Okay, so I suppose it's now my turn to tell you something about myself. Uh, I was born in India and uh, actually began to think about doing history as uh, a discipline, as an occupation, becoming an academic when. Subaltern studies emerged on the horizon while I was an undergraduate at Delhi University. And uh, subaltern studies marked a distinct departure in a a kind of very tired kind of history writing that we'd become used to in India, where uh, the nationalism was the horizon of almost all thinking in terms of the last 200 years of Indian history. And subaltern studies brought in currents from British Marxism, French structuralism, German idealism, Hegel was a huge influence. And suddenly it began to seem that just the walk to the archive and back wasn't sufficient, that one needed to think more broadly about certain issues. And so I began to work on nationalism, a critique of national Indian nationalism, largely through the history of the place where I come from, the southwestern state of Kerala, which elected the first ever communist government to power in 1956, a parliamentary communism. And this coming to power was premised on a long history of opposition to caste in egalitarianism in the region. So communism, in many senses, resolved itself into a social movement directed against caste. So it was a very uh, local understanding of uh, an ideology that was universal. Mm-hmm. And subaltern studies actually provided us with that confidence to think about universalizing from where we were rather than just the import of universal categories from elsewhere. But perhaps I'll speak a little more about this later. And I began to write about subaltern groups, largely uh, untouchables, lower castes, uh, their migrations as labor across the ocean, their imaginations. I translated a novel, the first novel written by Uh, in my language, in Malayalam, by a uh, lower caste individual. And I began to realize that the conception of territory here was very different. If uh, the upper caste imagination tended to be largely landed and terrestrial, because indeed that's what colonialism was premised on, on revenue settlements, on vesting local elites, uh, law and order, and so on, that with these subaltern groups, it was largely a maritime Uh, kind of imagination where they were reaching across the ocean in terms for labor as also finding affinities with spaces like the United States, the experience of slavery, Africa, and so on and so forth. So my work slowly began to expand beyond engaging with issues of caste and nationalism and communism to thinking with the ocean. And uh, indeed, that's what brought me here to South Africa, after a decade or so of teaching at Delhi University to set up the Center for Indian Studies in Africa, and to think about the uh, kind of export of the category of the nation state in some sense, which I was rebelling against, into studies of the ocean. So there were those who studied the Indian Ocean, those those who studied the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and these were seen as distinct spaces rather than merely heuristic devices. And beginning to think about these continuous oceans to borrow a concept from a wonderful book recently by Ranisa Mavani. And so looking at the histories of the ocean uh, led me to uh, thinking about the global south more generally, a political stance certainly. So what would come after subaltern studies, what would come after postcolonial theory, what would thinking from the global south mean in terms of actually producing knowledge from our spaces, producing theoretical concepts from our spaces, and to move out of that bind at the end of Dipesh Chakravarti's book, Provincializing Europe, where there was this extensive critique of the idea of a hyper-real Europe, but the book ended by saying despi- uh, one of the things is that despite a critique of colonialism, we must realize that European thought was a gift to us. And this was a deeply disappointing end to an otherwise radical book, and when I began to think about the vast traditions of intellection in our spaces, whether it's South Asia, Asia, more generally Caribbean, the Middle East, Latin America, and so on. So, in that sense, uh, the thinking about capitalism, so this volume that Kaveh and I did together when he came over as postdoc to my center was really to think about these vast spaces, think about uh, what does it mean to think capitalism from outside of Europe's uh, self-regarding histories of capitalism.
1: Well, you've led very nicely into my my next question, which was regarding the motivations actually in producing um, this particular book. And Dilip, maybe we can we can pass immediately back to you because you've you've already touched upon you know this drive, um, this kind of what does it mean to talk about the global South when it comes to to capitalisms. Perhaps you could just reflect on this a little bit.
2: Yeah, thank you. I think uh, uh, it'll allow me to segue nicely into the another set of themes because. Uh, one of the uh, problems, again, when we do history, is this question of periodization, of studying something called the ancient, uh, the medieval, and the modern, and Kave has some excellent re-theorizations, which I hope he'll speak about, about thinking about modernity. And uh, this is the trap, really, that Dipesh Chakravarti talked about, where uh, the... Modern is not just a temporal category of the last two or three hundred years, but it's also a kind of judgment on certain spaces that are not modern. And there is an ideal space of modernity, which is largely in in Europe and America, located in Europe and America. But this also leads us not only to the question of space, but of time, that we deal with a very abbreviated notion of time, the abbreviated time of modernity, so invariably those of us who are studying the present, the contemporary, don't think beyond, we are not adventurous enough to think beyond the last 300 years, which indeed maps onto the history of colonialism and its move across the world. And alongside this is also the trying to understand the history of our spaces in terms of industrial capitalism or its lack thereof. So given time, the third world will industrialize. There is a notion of the less developed countries, more developed countries. So this multiple set of concepts which are knitted together in dividing the world into modern and non-modern spaces and this notion of abbreviated time. So the question then became, how far back do we have to go in order to study the present? Right? Do we indeed go back only to the onset of colonialism when uh, spaces in Asia and Africa become chapters in the history of European expansion? Or do we think about broader swathes of time that different spaces have different temporalities? That when you're studying uh, China, for example, that you know the origins of the Chinese states are in the before the Christian era. So this question of how far back one has to go to study the present became a, an exigent question. There's also the space of thought, uh, and uh, this is something that we've all wrestled with, You know, this question of the nation state and its autobiography, uh, thinking about uh, spaces called India, spaces called uh, Kenya, spaces called England, without thinking about the porosity uh, of spaces, of the movement of people, ideas, and so on. And so I began to think in my work, and this again uh, figures in this volume as well. Uh, to borrow an idea from the Caribbean uh, thinker Edward Glissant, uh, the idea of an archipelagic imagination, where you connect non-contiguous spaces through their interaction. So spaces closer together are not necessarily more connected than spaces further apart. So if you think about the movement of silver, which is discussed in our in the volume, you're thinking about Mexico being becoming connected to the Philippines, India, China, and Europe through the silver mines and the circulation of silver, which then sets up a whole host of political and economic consequences. And finally, I think the idea really, uh, one of the central motivations is that when we think about capitalism right now, again, it is with this abbreviated time, and capitalism becomes the horizon of thought. It's a bit like the Truman Show, uh, Peter Weir's film, where Jim Carrey is trapped in a reality show, and we tend to imagine that capitalism is indeed the horizon of everything that is happening in the world right now, and there are multiple temporalities, multiple other social formations, and capitalism presents us only if we on analysis with one of the times and one of the processes that is active at this present historical conjuncture. It certainly doesn't subsume. All of human activity. And this was the imperative that led us to think about other spaces and longer times.
0: Uh, Kavi? Yes, just to, just to add to that. Um, so um, part of our motivation was also, of course, to engage with an important topic that uh, has become more and more pertinent in the 20th and 21st centuries. So despite the multiple temporalities, um, I guess it's a matter of fact that capitalist social relations and laws of motion have become more and more prevalent in the past two centuries, and uh, maybe the ebbing of the so-called Fukuyama moments in the early 1990s and uh, the financial crisis in 2008-2009 have sparked renewed interest in capitalism too. In any case, um, the rising income inequality is the widening gap between rich and poor, and uh, also, the issues of environmental destruction and climate change are all intimately related to capitalism and uh, make it even more pressing to trace its history. And of course, I um, myself had previously uh, engaged with the so-called transition and great divergence debate. So it seems to be obvious to also engage with the issues of capitalism, which, um, interestingly enough, has been a rather marginal topic in the great divergence debate, So while quite a lot has been written on capitalism from the mid-19th century onwards, I would say there is a relative dearth of global histories of capitalism engaging with uh, the period prior to the 19th century. So actually, we were delighted and honored that so many excellent scholars accepted our invitation. And um, maybe a last word, we also wanted to engage with the Cambridge history of capitalism, which uh, took important steps to further the debate and deepen our understanding. But uh, we wanted to take up the discussion and include some of the themes and regions that were neglected by volume one of the Cambridge History of capitalism, but maybe we can talk about that later.
1: We certainly will. We'll come back to that, but I'd like to just pick up a little bit on um, the actual other contributors to the volume, as you as you've just mentioned, um, Kaveh. So, could you tell us a little bit about the the types of scholars who were involved in the project, um, and and perhaps the diverse fields that they come from, which together help to create this much kind of richer um, understanding of, of, of kind of the global history of capitalisms. Sure.
0: Thanks for the question. So uh, the contributors are are I would say among the leading uh, scholars in their respective fields. So most of them have already engaged and are more or less known for their interventions in socioeconomic history, Uh, also the history of capitalism or the Great Divergence Debate, for that matter. At the same time, all contributions to this volume are original contributions, so they have not been published elsewhere. And uh, the book is divided into two main sections the first section of the book is titled major debates and controversies and in their respective chapters Dennis O'Flynn and Henry Heller for example rely on entangled and global history approaches they both emphasize the role of silver and world money Leonardo Marquez focuses on new world slavery David Washbrook grapples with the Cambridge history of uh, capitalism uh, specifically Tietanka Roy's contribution on India. Furthermore, there are chapters on Russia by Alessandro Stanziani and Southeast Asia by Eric Tagliakotsu. So this was the first section of the book. The second section of the volume is titled Case Studies in the Histories of Capitalism. And there we have chapters on capitalist development in China by Ken Deng and uh, Anne Kheritsen. Uh, England has been covered by Joseph Inikori. And there is a chapter on Japan by Masaki Nakabayashi on Ottoman Cairo by Nelly Hanna. And finally, Safavid and Qajar Persia by Rudy Matei. So that would be the volume in a nutshell.
1: Thank you. Well, maybe we can um kind of think a little bit more, I guess, uh, holistically about it. Dilip, would you be able to just tell us a bit about the kind of general structure, perhaps, and and the scope? I'm especially thinking, perhaps, maybe chronologically, um, here of the book.
2: Right. Actually, this, uh, you know, Kavi spoke briefly about the kinds of authors, and for uh, those who've the, our listeners who are familiar with the work of these authors it's quite clear that they belong to different paradigms of thinking as well and I think that's what we wanted to do We didn't want to produce an ideologically coherent uh, kind of book you know which fell within a Marxist or a liberal or a you know or a particular tradition. We were interested in the idea of the diversity of historical experience and which is why we brought these people together who in many senses were, very often not familiar with each other's work. And as Kaveh said, uh, these contributions are original uh, also because of this conversation that emerged in the course of the volume and of the conference, because some of the uh, papers were presented at a conference at Johannesburg. Some of the writers came in later and agreed to contribute on the strength of the existing papers. So this question of the scope of the book... I think to just uh, go back to what I said earlier, one is this notion of the long durée, I mean that to study some, a phenomenon called capitalism, we need to go back in time, think about the multiple processes that in some sense culminate in industrial capitalism, contribute to industrial capitalism, make industrial capitalism possible, and to kind of move also away from certain kinds of teleologies but also this idea of a grand espace, you know, to, contra- to kind of sit alongside the uh, long durée that we need to think about the world, right? Not a particular location in the world as being the heart of capitalism or the birth of capitalism. A lot of the cliches that we've grown up with in the historical discipline. So now one way in which uh, this was handled, I mean, this huge diversity of historic- historical experience and different historical trajectories was handled, or could be handled, was to kind of discipline it. And the Cambridge history, uh, which was the initial uh, kind of spur to our thinking about this conference and then the volume, uh, worked with four criteria, which they said defined largely an institutional economics approach about markets, contracts, states, and so on. Four things that characterize... So the book... uh, actually work with a minimal definition, we were trying to work with a maximal definition. So for instance, what what would it mean to think with Southeast Asia? And Southeast Asia gets uh, neglected in histories of capitalism because uh, it's seen as a late starter. So somewhere in the 80s, places like South Korea begin to take off, or you might think about Japan as being an uh, anomaly or an ex- uh, you know within this larger historical experience only because it's located in Asia. So these uh, a lot of these questions which worked with a fixed paradigm and everything else was uh, all other parts of the world either became anomalies right or they became places that didn't experience have this historical experience except through the spread of colonialism. So Southeast Asia was characterized largely by maritime commerce, uh, by trade, and the rule of the state was fairly minimal, uh, and you're thinking about largely port based economies. Uh, you're thinking about a different kind of economy, but if you are to think about the long durée on the emergence of capitalism, one has to bring in the history of oceanic commerce, of merchants, and so on. And Kaveh will again speak a bit about mercantile uh, capitalism later. If we think about China, one can go back in time to Song China and think about forms of labor organization so that the idea of the Industrial Revolution producing a particular kind of labor organization that was conducive to capitalism and that this emerged in England in the factory and so on. We can begin to think about the genealogies of labor organization. We think about silver, uh, Dennis O'Flynn's essay in this, and silver is a commodity that actually connects the world across. It encircles the globe and feeds into political formation, feeds into social organization and disorganization, the idea of the 17th century crisis in Europe. And we're also thinking about the production of silver, where, again, there were multiple forms of labor, ranging from uh, labor with a wage to coerced labor to forms of uh, actual forms of slavery and so on. So as you can see, what I'm trying to emphasize here is the huge difference uh, in uh, differences within the idea of capitalism and de- depending upon where we, which space we look at. So the essay on China by Kent Teng, for example, speaks about one-off capitalism. It's a wonderful phrase where he looks at the, the particular conjuncture, particular climatic conjuncture the onset of the ice age, uh, smaller and uh, the minor ice age, which actually uh, pushes cultivation southwards. And that generates a whole uh, new set of productive forces in China, leading to the growth of uh, mercantile activity, the engagement of China with the sea. I mean, we know that all of this comes to an end by the 15th century, with uh, the ad- Chinese admiral Zheng He's voyages, which map the ocean, then come to an end and China retreats inwards. But the origins of that, the first age of discovery, I mean, it's not Magellan and Bartholomew dies and so on. We need to think about Zheng He's voyages as also mapping the entire uh, stretch of the ocean from China through to Africa. And again, another kind of uh, difference from the larger... Encyclopedia of Capitalism as published in England, for example, is the idea of uh, Russia being a special case. So what we were trying to militate against or work against was the idea of these special cases. And anything is a special case only in as much as we already have a narrative which we accept and take for granted. So Russia is seen as a very specific uh, case in which uh, characterized by economic backwardness, by serfdom, uh, you know the agrarian road to capitalism, and so on. And what uh, Alessandro Stanziani's work does is to look at the role of peasants and landlords in actually investing in industry. So uh, it's not as if uh, China, I mean, Ru- sorry, Russia can be characterized only by serfdom and uh, kind of the agrarian binders on the development of capitalism, but actually how within the agri- agricultural economy, there were resources of capital made available for the growth of industrial capital and of industry. So the uh, general structure in the scope of the book is one, to give the idea of a much larger landscape, to do away with shibboleths, you know, about particular trajectories, particular origins, particular locations, which are more suitable, and so on, and to remind ourselves that we need to think afresh about histories of capitalism and not to think backwards from the experience of England and Europe alone, but, but, but more logically to think forwards from South China into the present.
1: And something that you know the book does so well, I think, is is map out the limitations in the um, existing literature on the history of capitalism. So, as you say, these ideas of fixed paradigms and this this attempt to kind of map coherence um, throughout the history of, uh, let's face it, Western capitalism um, in particular. But something that I'd like to to pick up on, and and you've already both touched upon it a little bit, um, is the difficulty really of defining capitalism or capitalism's plural, um, and all of these satellite concepts, you know, like globalization that we can't um, kind of miss out when we're talking about capitalism. Could I ask you to to maybe reflect a little on how the volume um, variously interprets this issue actually of definition?
0: Yes, well, that's a very good question, indeed. And... um It goes without saying that there is no scholarly consensus on how to define capitalism, and of course it's an intricate issue as well. Um, We uh, have refrained from giving a clear-cut definition of capitalism in the introduction, partly because um, we have done so elsewhere and partly because a number of contributors have grappled with uh, questions of definition in their respective chapters. So <clears throat> we thought it would be appropriate to leave it open. That said, um, we distance ourselves from the broad and transhistorical definition given in Volume 1 of the Cambridge History of Capitalism. And I guess that's why we begin the story in the 10th century rather than ancient Babylonia, as uh, the Cambridge History of Capitalism volume, volume 1 does. I would argue that, broadly speaking, there are probably... At least five different schools of thought when it comes to the uh, definition of capitalism or grappling with capitalism in general. So, <clears throat> firstly, there are Smithian approaches that underscore commercialization, things like trade, markets, and division of labor. And there's Marxian approaches, maybe best epitomized by the Paul Sweezy and uh, Maurice stop controversy, or the Manuel Waderstein, Robert Brenner debates. And um, when it comes to Marx and approaches, they probably often suggest the centrality of social relations of production. And since the 1970s, and especially in the past few decades, there are debates on the significance of slavery and wage labor or free and unfree labor relations for the emergence, but also for the rise and consolidation of capitalism. Um, some Marxian approaches also emphasize the role of productive force. So things like machines, technology, and so forth, but also labor power and the relevance of uh, violence and coercion, or what Marx called the so-called processes of original accumulation. Uh, Maybe thirdly, we could say that there is a Weberian approach um, in understanding the history of capitalism which uh, emphasizes the importance of, for instance, the Protestant ethic or ethos of merchants and producers, and probably even more significant for the past uh, debates, uh, the significance of culture and rationality. And um, this school of thought includes scholars such as Joel Mockier and Jaird McCloskey, who are of course, well-known. Fourthly, There are institutional schools of thought. Um, Dilip has already referred to Larry Neal. But um, maybe more important are scholars such as Douglas North, Darren Acemolu, and Geoffrey Hodgson, who rather focus on property rights and law, whereas um, scholars such as Patrick O'Brien or Per Fries and maybe William Ashworth underscore the role of the state tax collection, and also mercantilism. Again, others highlight financial institutions such as credit money, central banks, and the national debt. And maybe last but not least, um, we could uh, refer to non-eurocentric and entangled or connected history approaches for that matter, which highlight similar or parallel trajectories between East and West. Um, Some also focus on the diffusion of knowledge, skill, expertise, resources, and so forth, uh, while others scrutinize factors such as resource endowments, colonialism, and contingency. The best known of which probably adhere to the so-called California school, people like Kenneth Pomeranz, Roy Ben Wong, Jack Goldstone, and so forth. So, in other words, there are internalist versus externalist approaches, long-term versus short-term approaches causal versus contingent approaches, connected, conjunctural, and, and holistic approaches. So the different contributors, as Dilip has already mentioned, follow some or several of these methods and theories. And that's why we also thought that it would be best to leave the definition question open. Um, yes, if I
2: could just add to that, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is that uh, in one of the chapters in our book, uh, which is by Rudy Maté on Iran, also takes up the case of uh, a space within which capitalism did not happen. So I think this is an important uh, way of thinking about a problem. I mean, what Conan Doyle would have looked at as the case of the dog that did not bark, you know, the from the his short story, Silver Blaze. So it's the idea of something that did not happen actually providing us with ways of thinking about what did happen uh, other than merely providing us with a limit case. Now, Ka- Kavi and I also uh, engage with the histories of capitalism uh, within literature that goes back around 50 or 60 years, but you also come at it from a uh, different perspectives in the sense that Uh, you know, it's also a generational perspective. You know, I did my uh, PhD way back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Kaveh's PhD is more recent. And so uh, the paradigms within which we think have been uh, quite different in some sense. So when uh, my... Thinking about capitalism and my teaching on capitalism was located in a particular moment when I first began thinking about the issue where there were the works of Michael Mann, uh, Jean Bakler, and so on, where there was a particularity given to Europe that uh, capitalism indeed could have originated only in Europe. We have okay, we've moved far away from that kind of hubris uh, right now, intellectual hubris that characterizes Uh, European history, or we've come to more contingent ideas of Europe itself uh, right now, and the need to reconceptualize the idea of Europe, and even to jettison what uh, Dipesh Chakravarti talked about, where he talked about a hyper-real Europe. I mean, right now, it's not very clear whether ideologically or empirically Europe is an entity, a viable entity, and there's considerable discussion on that. Now, all of this kind of inform Uh, the ways in which we think about a problem like capitalism. Because if you think about the early period of confidence, the idea was that, look, uh, in Europe, you had the origins of the state. You had uh, internecine warfare, which necessitated the commandeering of populations of resources, ideas like military fiscalism. There there was even the uh, notion that Europe was characterized by a particular kind of rationality, which was absent in Eastern spaces. And a lot of these were uh, way, uh, statements of self regard rather than of any theoretical sophistication. And uh, you also had some of these works which looked at other spaces. So, for example, if you were to look back at an early work by Mark Elvin, uh, which talked about the high level equilibrium trap in China, you know, that China had reached a state of uh, production uh, that ne- didn't necessitate uh, any further. Advancement, technological advancement to political advancement. And when you look back on it from uh, 30 years down the line, you begin to see shades of uh, Saeed Hussein Alatas's uh, argument about the myth of the lazy native. You know, that China's high level equilibrium trap becomes a form of the argument where, hey, Oriental societies tended to relax, unlike Europe, which is characterized by restless energy. Uh, One of the things that Kaveh does uh, very well in the uh, introduction and uh, he made aware to me in the kinds of conversations we had over many years was this idea of where do ideas come from? And very often a lot of the ideas seen as driving European capitalism seem to originate in that hermetic space called Europe without taking into account the longer genealogies uh, of the Arab Uh, bridge, as it were, the carrying over of uh, the tradition of Greek thinking into Europe during the Renaissance, that we need to think about a more miscellaneated genealogy, and also to think about the various financial, social, political processes across the globe, uh, which are carried in the uh, space of European expansion into these spaces, and they find their way back and are reconstituted. So at the same time as one might think about a great divergence, as in the case of uh, the California school, uh, which Kawi spoke about, you also need to think about a great convergence that happens where ideas that have been in circulation in the Middle East and Asia and so on begin to converge in Europe at a particular historical conjuncture. So Europe becomes the legatee, as it were, of previous historical thinking as well as social and economic developments. So I think uh, when we think about this critique of uh, existing definitions of capitalism, there are these big questions at the back of our mind, as well as also the fact of this a demystification of uh, the development of somehow more rational economic procedures in uh, spaces like uh, Europe and America. I mean. You, Oh, you may remember Edward Baptist's wonderful book on slavery, where he says the most important innovation that happened to increase production uh, under slavery in uh, in the United States was the use of the whip. It was coercion and violence, right? Rather than any fantastic innovation uh, that lay at the heart of uh, the minor leaps in production that did happen. And Sven Beckett's uh, wonderful book on cottons again has led us back to a history of, Uh, the question of violence that is at the heart of capitalism. And I think this kind of issue is something that we need to think about as a, uh, which moves away from earlier histories, which saw capitalism as uh, the secular spread, as it were, of capitalism as the most rational form of organization across the globe, and beginning to understand how it originated in an already globalized world, And that it was the use of violence and the use of suppression of other forms of economic activity, the creation of civilizational hierarchies that leads us to that definition of capitalism, which sees it as originating in uh, spaces in Europe and then expanding outwards and, you know, granting a gift to the world of uh, economic production. I think I'll stop there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thanks, Dilip. Well, let's let's turn then to some of those very different ways um, of uh, interpreting and looking at capitalisms, because the first section of the volume actually looks specifically and focuses on these major debates and, and controversies um, in the field. So, I was wondering if, if perhaps you could outline just some of these major debates for listeners who might not um, be so familiar with with the with the topic, and and maybe perhaps pick out some of the ways in which they're explored in the corresponding chapters.
0: Sure. Sure. Thank you for the question. So maybe um, I can start off with the introduction, just to give a, a broader view of what's, what we're trying to do. So um, the introduction briefly summarizes some some of the existing literature on the importance of global conjunctures and non-European resources, labor power, goods, ideas, institutions, techno-scientific developments, things such as consumer demands and socio-economic dynamics in general. Uh, especially in the context, of course, of the genesis of historical capitalisms. So to give you some examples, we highlight the central role of American bullion in lubricating Western Europe's economy and allowing European powers to buy Asian and African goods and commodities. Um, Also, without the intention to belittle intra-European dynamics, we emphasize that export markets were crucial for the development as were resources such as sugar and cotton. So we reiterate that the engagement with Indian textile production sparked imitation by British, French, and also Swiss artisans, while experimentation with Indian woods steel, or the so-called damask steel, enhanced the birth of European metallography in the early 19th century. So as argued by K. N. Chaudhury, Fernand Brudel, and more recently by the late Angus Madison and uh, Prasanna Partasarati, European import substitution in things like textiles, pottery, and porcelain was, at least to some extent, a result of the supremacy of Asian products in the world economy. So England's lack of competitiveness in global markets vis-a-vis Indian products, mm, in conjunction with her higher wages, prices, and production costs, for example, um, partly explains why it was beneficial to invest in the mechanization of textile production in Britain, while India didn't really need to kind of mechanize textile production because they were already um, competitive in in markets. So um, in the introduction, we also discussed the connected intellectual history of political economy, something which uh, um, was not taken up other contributors. So we thought that this would be a particularly important uh, subject, which uh, also gets kind of short shrift in the existing literature. So we underscore the possible influences of Chinese thoughts on French physiocracy, ideas of laissez-faire and meritocracy. But uh, the history of political economy would also be incomplete if we ignore the important contributions by Persian polymaths, such as Ghazali, who uh, lived in the 11th and 12th century CE, Tusi, who lived in the 13th century. Um, these scholars in particular part, uh, anticipated ideas on division of labor that in Europe only emerged b- about three or four centuries later. Uh, Ghazali, for instance, um, elaborated on the concept of division of, of labor using the example of a needle factory, so to some extent, he anticipated 18th century European illustrations by means of the pin factory, probably most best well known by the uh, example of Adam Smith. So um, the North African scholar Ibn Khaldun is another case in point. He developed a labor the- theory of surplus production, which was an immediate precursor to Ricardian and Marxian Labor theories of value. So uh, let us turn to the uh, first section of the book now. So here, some individual chapters grapple with the question of how to define capitalism. Um, Furthermore, every chapter either examines the global interconnections, entangled histories, and intertwined processes that went into the making um, and uh, co co production of historical capitalisms, or uh, these individual chapters explore internal socioeconomic dynamics of a number of regions. So, in our case, Brazil, parts of Eurasia, and Africa, and mostly in comparative perspective. So, uh, allow me to provide a few examples um, for each of these approaches. So, David Washbrook, for example, critically engages with the broad definition of capitalism proposed in the Cambridge History of Capitalism. He argues that the suggested definition makes capitalism difficult to distinguish from sustained economic growth. And it also obscures the relationship of labor to capital and promotes a national economy as the um, natural arena in which discrete histories of capitalism should be written. By contrast, what Washbrook proposes um, is that um, if capitalism were understood as a transnational set of forces, India's supposed marginality and its genesis uh, in washbook words becomes illusory. In his uh, contribution, Dennis Flynn points out that American, European, and Japanese silver largely ended up in China. And um, he argues that globalization took off in the 16th century and connected trade regimes that link together multiple free and coerced labor systems simultaneously, um, an argument that is probably reminiscent of Immanuel Wallerstein. And for Flynn, the lessons from global history suggest that national capitalisms can no longer serve as reasonable units of analysis. Um, Because he argues that uh, from the outset of 16th century origins, globalization generates its intertwined economic, environmental epidemiological, demographic, and cultural accumulations. Henry Heller, too, um, rejects Eurocentric approaches or views expressed by so-called political Marxists that um, assume that the non-European world played no uh, role in the development of capitalism. So he emphasizes factors such as class struggle and political and ideological struggles. But she also highlights the emergence of world money, which he argues made capitalism a global rather than a merely European phenomenon. On the other hand, just to illustrate um, the different approaches from the global to the national scale, um, Alessandro Stanziani explores Russia's economic development, as uh, Zilip has already mentioned, and he takes a kind of a long-durée perspective from the early 18th century to the abolition of serfdom in 1861, up to World War I. And uh, he argues that Russian economic dynamics were more far-reaching than usually held in terms of rates of growth. And he contends that Russia's trajectory was labor-intensive and mostly based on modernizing peasants and landlords. And that was exactly the problem um, for further developments because, as he argues, these solutions were eventually compatible with the first but not the second industrial revolution. So maybe Dilip wants you want to pick up
2: on, on that. Um, not for the moment. i I think you've kind of covered all bases there.
1: It's, it was a very kind of rich explanation, thank you, Kaveh. But maybe I can then just get you to perhaps talk about your own chapter in in this section. Um, while we have you on the show, it's nice to kind of um, I- exploit your own knowledge about about the book. But so you're you're focusing really um, in your chapter on Mysore during the reigns of the Muslim rulers. So you've got Hyder Ali and, and Tipu Sultan in the late eighteenth century, and what you call the potential for capitalist development and industrialization before the period of co- um, colonization. So, could you explain perhaps to, to listeners how the example of Mysore specifically helps to really complicate the existing histories of capitalism and, and the types of examples and approaches that you use to reflect on the economic development of the area?
0: Yes, sure. Thank you. I, I'd be happy to do that. So, um, Mysore, uh, just to give you a, a, a kind of outline on where it is located, so it's in the south of uh, of India, and uh, Mysore was a Uh, sultanate uh, uh, headed by the first Muslim rulers of uh, the province, Haydar Ali, um, who ruled between 1761 and 1782, and his son Tipu Sultan, who uh, ruled till 1799 when he was overthrown and killed by the British East India Company. So uh, during the second half of the 18th century, these two autocrats, and I would argue transitional figures, because um, they were somewhat they somewhat possessed both pre-modern and modern mindsets. Um, these two autocrats were not only among the most powerful modernizers of South India, but also of the subcontinent and, I would even argue, as uh, of Asia as a whole. Um, the threats posed by the growing power of the British East India Company kind of lubricated the wheels of political, fiscal and military reforms and also fueled profound efforts at centralization, mercantilism, and protectionism in in Mysore. So in conjunction with the already existing advances in commerce, artisanry, and uh, incipient capitalist relations of production, for example, in textile manufacture or mining, um, the changes that were set in motion suggests that Mysore found itself in an interim stage, a, a transitional period, and um, historical conjuncture with multiple prospects of socioeconomic developments, including, I would argue, the potential scope for a transition towards a sort of industrialization process, even though, of course, this is not a um, teleological uh, uh, process because, of course, we could also imagine that uh, Mysore would not have industrialized or um, transitioned to industrial capitalism. This was just the potential Um, and very much also dependent on on the rulers, because it was very much um, a process from above. Um, Indeed, Tipu launched a kind of economic development program, making use of hundreds of forced, skilled European laborers, hired artisans and military personnel. Um, Heder and his son Tipu were also able to take advantage and even monopolize and control swaths of fertile agrarian lands, iron and steel mines and built weaponry that was interesting interestingly enough more or less on par with its European counterpart. So in a nutshell Mysore underwent some organic commercial capitalist developments from below and also possessed potentialities for catch up industrialization from above. But um, I would argue contrary to other core regions of post Mughal India, that is the period from roughly the, uh, the uh, uh, death of Aurangzeb in 1707 onwards, uh, regions such as Bengal in the northeast and Gujarat in the northwest of India, where the merchant class was much more powerful. Uh, in uh, Mysore, the state played a crucial role in the socio-economic development of the sultanates. So arguably, this environment was more conducive to forced industrialization from above than capitalist development from below. And... Um, and the final analysis the indigenous potentialities for capitalist and or industrialization in the absence of colonial rule remain an open question of course as mysore was a transitional society whose socio-economic trajectory was thrown back due to colonial rule and exploitation
1: So the second section then of the volume moves to discuss case studies more specifically of the history of capitalism. And it ranges geographically from Japan to Egypt and China and England and Iran. You know, we've we've kind of touched upon these already a little bit. Um, and they, the chapters also span from 960 CE to the 19th century. So this, this long durée that <laughs> Dilip has already brought to our attention is, is incredibly very long indeed. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how these very diverse um, cases, not only geographically and chronologically, but also in terms of um, the actual kind of focus, I suppose, of, of where they're looking at capitalism in these places, how they're interacting and, and what are some of the connections that arise from this this very comparative approach?
2: Um, it's actually, uh, we've kind of uh, been touching upon this in various ways and uh, uh, perhaps it to avoid the risk of repeating uh, some of the uh, arguments made in the particular chapters or indeed in our introduction, because we do want people to read this book and not treat this interview as a crib, as it were. you know, it, We do think about royalties occasionally. Uh, uh, the, uh, what I would like to say here in response to this question is, Again, uh, at a much more, uh, at a slightly more abstract level, as you can see, the, I mean, one of the uh, interesting things about the collaboration with Kaveh is that Kaveh is very deeply rooted in this uh, historical literature on capitalism. I came at it from the outside since my work has been mainly on conceptual and intellectual history. And so we kind of... Uh, uh, kind of bounced off each other in uh, very, very creative and I think ways which were very, very useful for me where uh, Kaveh was reminding me sometimes that I was kind of uh, running away with the argument. But to get back to the question, I mean, one of the, uh, there's a very interesting metaphor in Levi Strauss's Tristov Peak where he talks about uh, uh, two trains traveling across a landscape and how people in the trains measure uh, their relative movement as against each other. So if one train is speeding and the other is slow and so on, and that, and, and what uh, Levi Strauss was pointing to was the fact of our limited and myopic perspective where we compare what is visible. And he, uh, what he's basically uh, arguing with this metaphor is that, look, there's something else that's happening in that large landscape outside. You know, Trains which are probably moving much faster probably regions where trains don't exist and so on and so forth. So this measure of comparison uh, that we already always think with in the history of capitalism is uh, the assumption that there is a space in which capitalism is fully developed and uh, the rest of the world ought to be measured against it. And it's increasingly becoming clear that we are possibly returning back to the 16th and 17th century, uh, uh, where the hub of the world was China and Asia, and that Europe's uh, time in the world is perhaps over, there are multiple ways of thinking about this issue of the question of uh, diversity and of comparison. So, in this, uh, in our book too, it was also this attempt in these chapters to present very different cases. And as I said earlier, and as Kaveh has been pointing out, not to present a coherent teleological, uh, sealed kind of case for X or Y argument. So, we have Iran, where there is no capitalism, Southeast Asia, where there is no state, China, which had a one off capitalism, Japan, which is a really successful a case of industrial capitalism from the Meiji Restoration onwards. Russia, seemingly the agrarian road, but also industrializing. And if one thinks about this uh, huge map, and one thinks about the subsequent history of Europe at the end of colonialism, and we ask the question of where is Europe now? I mean, because if one were to think about this constant uh, comparison with the space where everything happened in the space from which everything originated. One of the most interesting books that have come out recently is by Hansen and his colleague on Eurafrica, right? The idea that after the uh, Second World War, the prospect of decolonization uh, actually uh, startles uh, European thinkers. I mean, it kind of gives them a sense of shock that the uh, w- premise on which Europe had become one of the most advanced uh, industrial uh, nations was actually because of the existence of colonies. Also, as Piketty points out, the huge compensations that were paid out to former slave owners in places like Haiti, which creates a plutocracy in France and so on. And the idea of the European Union is not born out of the devastation of the Second World War as much as the shock of losing the colony and the fact that uh, the African colonies wanted nothing more to do with the former colonizers. So there's, again, a much larger set of historical arguments that we need to think about when we do these comparisons. So what we tried to do in this book uh, with these diverse cases is also to think with what the uh, amazing historian Frank Berlin, who did one of some of the earliest works on capitalism in South Asia, wrote about, he talked about this, compiling of a library of categories and techniques. So we are thinking about a global vocabulary that is emerging, right, which begins to come together at a particular historical conjuncture. And we're thinking about ideas of connectedness, of circulation, of multiple genealogies rather than with the mere problem of comparison, which is what generally uh, studies of capitalism seem to restrict themselves to. So this longer time span, this l- larger consideration of space also allows us to think about the kinds of arguments that earlier Janet Abulugot made or more recently Anjagunda Frank have, where one needs to think about the voyages of discovery, you know, the uh, heroic voyages of discovery uh, where Columbus moves uh, uh, westwards because of the three chiefs of this and so the arbitrary line drawn by the Pope which gives... Uh, Portugal uh, the right to move eastwards and Spain the right to move westwards. I mean, fairly arbitrary factors, but also the fact of the expanding Ottoman Empire, the blockage of land routes, which then necessitates this voyage of discovery and the discovery of America. The whole question of the flow of New World silver, the emergence of the New World as a market for the production that's happening in Europe, and also, this question of sugar. I mean, Sidney this wonderful work in which uh, sweetness and power, so that there's this wonderful, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, poignant moment, a cameo in uh, Broughton's book on the Renaissance, where he talks about uh, Queen Elizabeth's bad teeth. She had black, rotting teeth and halitosis. Occasioned by the fact of huge consumption of sugar, which is a commodity, so suddenly Elizabeth's bad teeth and bad breath come connect become connected to the history of European expansion. So I think there are these multiple genealogies that we have to bear in mind, and this book attempts to do it in uh, the space of two covers, and I hope it is successful. But I'll end with one small point. I mean, it's increasingly becoming evident to those of us who write global histories, that the monograph may have been a function of the nation state. That once we begin to think globally, we have to work collaboratively across the world because it's impossible for one person to have that kind of expertise, no matter the reliance on secondary literature uh, and reliance on texts that have been translated, that when we think about this volume, Uh, it has actually meant a conversation across the globe, right? And so we bring in uh, people who are concerned less with the comparison and more with the connectedness of the world. And that's uh, really something that Sanjay Subramaniam highlighted fairly early on, that we need to think about connected histories. And I think this book is kind of working within that paradigm.
1: Thank you, Dilip. Kava, did you, did you have anything that you wanted to offer on that? If not, I'd quite like to pick up on this this um, idea of of global history. Sure,
0: sure. Please go go ahead.
1: Okay, so just just because Dilip's kind of already uh-huh. um, led so nicely into it, I was I was wondering if we if we could talk about. Um, you know, what is global history today? Because, you know, this is not a a new phenomenon. This is not a new methodology. This is not a a kind of um, a a new approach in in many ways. But global history is something that is changing um, quite substantially um, in in academia and and the kind of books and the kind of research that's coming out. And I was wondering if you could perhaps just tell us about your own very personal understandings of what global history means in 2020. And, you know, Dilip has already kind of quite uh, eloquently, you know, explained how the book is contributing to the ways in which we approach global history. But I would be interested to hear your reflections as to where that's going in the future. Yes.
0: So, uh, if I may start. So, um, needless to say, <clears throat> defining and characterizing global history is a complex and controversial matter, and um, there are certainly many other scholars who are more qualified to answer this question than than myself, but. Um, I tend to think that global history can be, uh, as you uh, mentioned, a method, an approach, and um, also an aspiration to gain wider and more comprehensive insights into the subjects that we study. So um, on the one hand, there are many different ways of doing global history. In that sense, it may be perhaps more appropriate to speak of global histories in the plural. And uh, broadly speaking, it may be described as the interconnections and interaction between the local and global. Or in other words, to view regional history from a global perspective and or to see how global processes influence the histories of the areas under study. And uh, often historical realities have more global or at least intercontinental connections than we think. So the history of science and technology is maybe a case in points, but it's also the history of food and cuisine, for instance. So uh, let me um, provide you with some examples. Take, for instance, paper, printing, gunpowder and the compass, which, uh, as probably most of you know, were all invented in China, but were quite uh, important for the emergence of modernity. Then there is, for instance, shampoo and rocket technology, which were adopted from India. There's tomatoes, potatoes, maize, chocolate, vanilla, and so forth, that originated in Central and South America. Then there's the sprouts of modern science, for instance, experimental methods of inquiry in mathematics, chemistry, medicine, and so forth. And even languages across the world owe, I would say, a lot to West, Central, and South Asia, Arabic, Spain, and North Africa. So take, for instance, the Indo-Arabic decimal system and algebra, the um, distillation of pure alcohol in West Asia, and theoretical breakthroughs um, epitomized by the likes of, say, Abu Ali Sina, Ibn Rushd, um, Ibn Tufail, and so forth. So, um we could also refer to Persian, Arabic, and Indian loan words. And for that matter, let me give you some obvious examples relevant to business language and the spread of capital in general. Um, as this is our subject. So these words include terms such as algorithm, cipher, zero, check, tariff, magazine, arsenal, and, and many others, but also less charming words like to loot thug and assassin so all this is to say that the origins of the modern world are often much more multicultural and polycentric than we think and conceive of um yes this is probably what i have to say on that on a in a, in a, in a short short note and I'm, I'm sure Dilip has much more to say on that
2: well, I hope so, but I'll, I'll I'll try because, see, one of the things that's happening with the growth of ideas of global history is that a lot of global history is being done in a kind of very ruggedly empirical way. So instead of studying one country, one studies three countries, or one instead of looking at one archive, one looks at archives across seven spaces. And it's not merely this accretion of card catalogs that, Uh, information in card catalogs that we need to look at as global history. We need to think about multiple imaginations that are colliding. And as uh, um, Kaveh pointed out, the fact that globalization is inherent in our very vocabularies and what we wear, what we eat, that the world is present in us, even as we live and breathe. And so how do we summon up that kind of uh, imagination And also to think about the fact of geography in a very different kind of way so that particularly when you think about the spaces of the internet that there are much larger uh, geographies that people inhabit these days that questions of uh, political affinities extend all the way from Mexico to China that one doesn't really need to be moving physically in order to inhabit a world that is larger than the space that your body occupies. Now, these are all very conceptual issues, but we need to think these through because I think one of the most significant metaphors for our time is the fact that we live with these notions of nation-states, passports, border regimes, and so on. And in 2016, when you had that huge influx of Syrians into Europe, a lot of them were people who just took to the waters and walked across it much like Christ did you know, many uh, centuries ago or is believed to have, that we are thinking about the the world as being a hugely connected space where this walking on water becomes a metaphor for the globalization that we are witnessing, that very often we have to think about people out of place. So we are thinking about... Uh, If you think about the fallout of the civil war in Sri Lanka, you're thinking about Sri Lankans in Toronto, Sri Lankan Tamils in Toronto, Sri Lankan Tamils in Capri and in England, the work done on Luskers, for example, and the maritime trade and the maritime movements of the uh, 19th and 20th century, you're thinking about people of all nationalities, ethnicities, religions who are everywhere there is a way in which the idea of national histories has sought to curtail this virus, so to speak, of the movement of people and ideas. So in that sense, we have to get back to this notion of global history as uh, after colonialism, after nationalism, and the myopia generated by notions of cartography, which have uh, created this golden calf of the national territory places called France, places called India, and so on and so forth. So truly global history demands a thematic kind of intervention. And so, for example, uh, we didn't bring the story of capitalism forward, and we were concerned really with a period prior to the 18th century. But if we were to think about the 19th century, there have been wonderful works looking at maritime history or indeed of Jeremy Presthol's one uh, work on called Domesticating the World, which looks at how African demand for cotton connected the industry in Salem, Massachusetts, and Bombay on the west coast of India. And one is thinking about uh, the first cotton mill in India was set up by the French to serve, Sen- serve Senegalese demand. So we're thinking about uh, the consumer demand and you know, the circulation of commodities, which is actually brought to an end by colonialism and the creation of these empires, where uh, the conversation across empires is not studied very much. You know, the people who study Anglophone empires, Francophone empires, lusophone empires, without looking at the paracolonial element, that there is much ha- happening which is not subordinate to these rhythms. So to uh, take an example that connects uh, economic history and intellectual history at the same time. So you have uh, in in 1865, you have the Civil War in America. And for a period, America ceases to be the sole supplier of cotton to the world, premised on the violence inflicted on slaves. And the west coast of India, Maharashtra, Big, begins to supply cotton uh, and it acquires a sudden prominence. You have the growth of certain groups associated with gardening and farming, uh, lower castes who acquire economic and social mobility. And you have the first, uh, the origin of the first uh, lower caste movement led by somebody called Jyotiba Phule on the west, in Maharashtra. He comes from the Mali or Gardener caste. In 1873, he writes a book called Gulamgiri, right, the gulam meaning slave, and he makes the first connection between lower-casteness and the experience of slavery in America, right? And so this geographical economic connection creates a set of intellectual currents which are then going to spark off multiple movements for social equality in India, and gulamgiri is dedicated to the former slaves of the United States. And this is a significant moment where we are beginning to think about geography as a matter of political affinity rather than as the space of a map. So this conceptual history, and this is the second point, I mean, if you have to think about a truly global history, we have to move away from the kind of... uh, Dehistoricized generalizations that you've been familiar with and we work with, Kant's idea of cosmopolitanism, Hegel's idea of world history, inbuilt into it are very deeply uh, hierarchical European ways of thinking. And how are we to now create a new vocabulary for studying this global history? which as Kaveh has so eloquently spoken about, how do we think with Ibn Khaldun? How do we think with Ghazali? How do we think with Confucius? How do we think with huge traditions of uh, thinking on self, politics, ethics, community, which come from uh, Amerindian thought, from Arabic uh, uh, philosophy, from Indian classical thought. So truly global history will also have to think with truly global concepts. So that we're not stuck with the trajectories of Euro normality, as Sudipta Kaviraj, the political philosopher, put it. And I'll end with the image of the compass. You know, there is a way in which we think about the compass as pointing north, right? And the Chinese compass points south. And this is an expression both of a different conception of geography as well as a different conception of cosmology. So it is this that we need to bring in if you are to truly write a global history think about the multiple historical experiences, the multiple conceptual vocabularies, and to think that at a time when we live with the prospect of the world being deluged, it's not the fire next time, it may be the water next time, you know, with water... Uh, extending up. We stand in water, as it were. Jakarta is flooded. Mumbai, as a city, might cease to exist by 2050. And this is going to be a global predicament. When we die, we'll all die together. Somehow belonging to the first world guarantees you no more security than belonging to the third world. So I think the pressures on us to think globally are exigent, are imminent. And we need to think very consciously about this beyond... uh, the discipline beyond the rigours of a department and certainly beyond nation-states.
1: Thank you for that incredibly thought-provoking um, reflection, both of you. I, I'd like to just um, finish by continuing to look forwards um, because, you know, you frame the volume as offering a map of possibilities for comparison and interconnections on this theme of historical capitalisms. And Based on this map, I, I was wondering if you would like to speculate on where you see research um, in the area of historical capitalism, especially going in in the future, and perhaps some of the paths that you see as being carved out by the volume.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, I think it would be great to see more works available, at least in English, on the socio-economic developments of, say, eight, 10th to 18th century China, Korea, the Ottoman Empire, India, and especially, I would say, Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, Iraq, African regions and polities, for instance, the role of merchant capital in West Asia, North Africa, regions like Mali, the Swahili coast, and so forth. So it would also be promising to see more studies on the history of capitalism from the perspective of the sea, something Dilip already mentioned, maybe more specifically the Persian Gulf, Red Sea, and Arabian Sea as part of the larger Indian Ocean. Um, I would also say that the increased utilization of archives in different Asian and African languages, is, sources in Arabic, Persian, Swahili, Gujarati, Chinese, Korean, etc., would certainly deepen our knowledge. And uh, it would be great to see more theoretical discussions, on the other hand, uh, for example, on the definition of de- definition and periodization of capitalism, um, on things like the relationship between merchants and industrial capitalism, the implications of different forms of free and unfree labor, and also the role of force and violence. Um, I think that um, the boom in global labor history and also discussions on uneven and combined developments in international relations, as also theoretical approaches by for instance, the late Neil Davidson, J.Rus Banerjee, uh, and others may uh, be helpful in this regard. Philip, would you like to pick up?
2: Uh, Yeah, actually, you know, Kaveh, I mean, uh, I I thought perhaps you could speak a little bit more, because I think in our conversations regarding the volume as well, we realized that there were some blank spaces, right? So for example, uh, Islam didn't figure very much. The Mediterranean didn't figure very much. Uh, as a space. And also I think, you know, you mentioned Jairus Banerjee's work on merchants and, uh, mercantile capitalism and commerce and so on. So w- would you like to say a little bit more about those three themes perhaps?
0: Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that's, there's certain aspects, especially the history of West Asia. I mean, we would have loved to have more on, uh, on West Asian, uh, and regions, but, uh, this is something which, um, I guess is, is, uh, has not been um, uh, explored sufficiently. I mean, there are, of course, scholars who work on these on these regions, but there is very few scholars who work on on, on the history of capitalism, of merchant capital, in these spaces. So uh, that's definitely, I think, be, be a very promising um, uh, area of research. Um, we. Would also have loved to have, of course, um, the Mediterranean represented in the chapters and 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 spaces like Korea. But of course, the space is limited. We were already uh, almost at the limit of our world limits. And um, I think this is there's a lot to do. Of course, I mean there 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 is a lot of spaces and also time periods that. Uh, deserve to be to be examined uh, from you know the perspective of at least merchant capital and maybe also in terms of industrial capital uh, the the early phases of industrial capitalism and and the early nineteenth and mid nineteenth century.
1: Yeah. And the volume certainly does kind of throw down the gauntlet um, in that respect. Um, And I think there will be many people who pick it up and read it and and really reconsider the ways in which they're they're, um, addressing the history of capitalism. Well, thank you both. We've taken up so much of your time. But before we let you go, could you just both briefly give us a a glimpse of what you're currently working on and we can perhaps look forward to reading in the future?
2: Uh, Kaveh, would you like to go first?
0: Sure. Thank you. Well, um, I uh, currently have a book project on the relationship between the Parsis of India and the Zoroastrians of Persia. Uh, together with the brilliant scholar of Iranian history, Nasser Mohajer, So this is a, a, a theme that I've been working on for quite a while. Um, I've just finished an article on Santo domingue the French Caribbean colony in the context of slavery and capitalism. And I'm currently also working on an article on socioeconomic change in India between 1700 and 1860 and a piece on the empires of the Indian Ocean, that is the Mughal, Ottoman and Safavid empires. And last but not least, I'm also working on some longer articles on conceptual histories of capital, capitalist, mm-hmm. capitalism, as well as discourses on free and unfree labor forms, such as slavery, serfdom, and wage labor. Uh,
2: thanks, thanks, Kave. I mean, actually, it's uh, this uh, space has allowed me to have this long conversation with Kaveh, because Kave was a postdoctoral fellow, then left for Bielefeld, and it's been restricted to WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, telephonic conversation so this uh, thank you Alexandra for providing the space to us uh, you know the uh, the three specific things that I'm working on right now you know one is a kind of uh, to go, go back to the question about global history uh, one is a volume that's going to come out next year and to stick with the idea of edited volumes versus monographs how do we create a conceptual vocabulary how do we uh, create an idea of thinking from the global South? Uh that is the uh, substance of the volume that's going to come out from Routledge. It's called Changing Theory, Concepts from the Global South, where over the last few years, you've held conferences where uh, around 20 scholars who work on 10 different languages uh, were brought together. And I gave them one remit, which is to think with a word from the languages that they work with and to think about the conceptual entailments of it. So we have... Uh, people working uh, with words in Sanskrit, Persian, Arabic, Zulu, Kosa, uh, you know, Wolof, uh, Mandarin, and so on. And the idea is not to work with existing theoretical traditions, but to engage in this intellectual exercise where we put words into conversation with each other, words from the Global South. So that's the volume. Uh, the book that I'm currently working on is looks at historical imaginations on. In southern India from 1850 to 1950, where I look at very diverse figures, uh, you know, who can be religious figures, literary critics, lawyers, Marxist theoreticians, all of whom produce histories. Now, generally, the uh, historians have tended to ignore these because they're not written by professional historians. But to say that history is that which is written by historians is an uninteresting tautology. So I'm actually looking at uh, why these figures choose to write history, how they see themselves as uh, writing from an experience which cannot be captured by the new protocols and regimes of historicity that are emerging under colonialism. So they sit beside the archive, beside certain forms of argumentation. And it's important for us to understand these other histories also because we are living in a time when uh, the historical discipline is being challenged by uh, what in India is called the WhatsApp University. as also by social media in Mm -hmm. which the uh, distinctions between fact and fiction are increasingly blurred. History has become merely a subjective enterprise. Uh, You can see this happening in the United States with the Republicans uh, generating their own ideas of what uh, historical knowledge is. So it's less to establish a genealogy of this forms of thinking, but to move away from the hubris that the historical discipline somehow has the commandeering heights and that historical imaginations are somehow to be ignored. So In this book, I'm trying to bring together these three, what Dipesh Chakravarti called History 1 and History 2, but it's a kind of gloss on that. I shan't get into it. And finally, I'm thinking with uh, a small biography of a literary critic called Kesari Baila who I've been working on over the last uh, 10 years. I mean, it's a maverick figure, a literary critic who as a response to Gandhian calls for non-cooperation, stops reading English literature, which does him a lot of good, of course, and begins to read uh, European literature, translates it into Malayalam. And he begins to write histories which engage with uh, the notion of the flood. So he's connecting biblical history with Chinese history, with Indian history. So you can see how some of these imaginations leak into uh, the conceptualization of the books, like both the capitalism book as well as the concepts book. And Valarishvila, in the 1930s, writes an essay, and I will stop with this, in which he asks a profound question, which I think resonates across time, where he begins his history of uh, the southwestern coast of India uh, by writing about Rome. And it connects up with that millennium long engagement across the oceans of Rome with Pepper from South Asia where the tribute that Carthage pays to Rome comes from, south, uh, from Southwest uh, India, right? You know, from Kerala. And so he begins with Rome because Rome is an integral part of that longer history, the long durée, the grand espace, all of these ideas that we were talking about. But he asks a question. He asks, is Kerala a chapter, Kerala being the state on the Southwestern coast, is Kerala a chapter in the history of Rome or is Rome a chapter in the history of Kerala? And I think this is the question that a post-colonial scholarship, a scholarship from the global south has to address. Is our spaces, Africa and Asia chapters in the history of Europe or is Europe a mere chapter in our history to be dealt with? And
1: well, I sense the, a great conference or book title coming from that. It certainly sounds like the two of you will be very busy. <laughs> um, and I certainly look forward to, to hearing more about um, these various projects in the future, hopefully even on the New Books Network. Um, Kaveh and Dilip, I would like to thank you again for being on the podcast. The book is Capitalism's Towards a Global History, published by Oxford University and Press in 2020. Dilip and Kaveh, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thanks a lot. Thank you, Alexander. It was a great pleasure talking to you.